Welcome to BIV Today. We are, of course, from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Wharton. I'm Haley Wooden. So, Haley, we've just launched our latest podcast here as part of the newspaper network that we've got going on. Uh, What's going on on the latest show? Well, we're going to have a look at what may no longer be true about marketing. As we know, we've talked about this many times before at BIV. Technology is disrupting everything. So the rules when it comes to marketing may have changed. Yeah, I think just the rapidness in which that we're viewing the change, I I think it's making a lot of people step back and think, how do I keep up with everything that's going on, though? I think that's a challenge. Exactly. And what is worth keeping up with and what may be too new to really try and adopt right away. So we'll, we'll have a look at the Vision Conference, which discusses these themes, and it's from the BC chapter of the American Marketing Association. So that's coming up later. But first, we're going to look at a major piece of technology news, and that's that Amazon will be expanding its presence in Vancouver with a more than 400,000 square foot facility in the downtown core. It's going to create 3,000 new jobs in cloud computing, machine learning, and of course, e-commerce. It begs the question, where are they going to get the people to fill these 3,000 jobs and what impact will that have on the ecosystem? Yeah, and I I definitely think about the idea of what it means for just the shape of the downtown core as well. This is going to be in the old Canada Post building, but I imagine that there are going to be other startups that are going to be flocking to that area. They want to be rubbing elbows with the people that are at Amazon. They want to be able to say, our doors are open for any talent that wants to come nearby, work with us. Mm -hmm. And so that also is going to just reshape the way that we think of a lot of the, I guess, the tech hubs within the city. Right now, Mount Pleasant's pretty hot. Uh, We've got other areas like Great Northern Way that's picking up. I wonder how much more the downtown core is going to be changed just because of Amazon. Yeah, it's a great question to ask. And fortunately, we have a technology panel here to walk us through that as well as some of the other news going on in the technology space. Ali Pordad is the CEO at Progressa, and Amiel Lake is an entrepreneur in residence at the University of British Columbia. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Let's start by turning our attention south of the border to a massive merger, unless it faces some hurdles to that. But at this point, T-Mobile and Sprint merging to create a $146 billion telecom giant. Ali, do you think this is going to face some antitrust concerns? Yes, I do. I, I think, uh, you know, this is sort of right up the Trump administration's alley as far as uh, picking on large mergers. Uh, it sort of has all the all the variables that are needed to, to get picked on. And so I, I do see it uh, facing hurdles. That being said, it, it probably will go through. It's going to create a probably what's needed in, in the US, which is a, a second or third largest, you know, solid player in, in the telecom space, one that can compete with uh, AT&T um, and Verizon. So, uh, you know, I, I do see it eventually going through, but it will certainly face hurdles. I mean, just for comparisons, I mean, up here, we've got, you know, Bell, Rogers, TELUS, and down in the States, it's, you know, uh, AT&T and Verizon that are the two big players. So I, I wouldn't quite compare T-Mobile and Sprint to, say, a freedom but it is kind of a similar comparison in that they are looking for another real big player as opposed to just kind of these these two uh, kind of second tier players that they have right now in that particular marketplace. Yeah, and I think uh, all said and done, if this does go through, each of these three 
big players who will own about a third of the marketplace. So it is quite a big deal. And, and one of the, the comments that the CEO of T-Mobile has been saying, Amiel, is that this will allow them to bring 5G across America. It'll allow them to really invest and advance their technology. Is this sort of the only way we get advancements? Do we need really big players that maybe sometimes need to merge to roll out something like 5G across the U.S.? Well, you definitely need scale and a large footprint. So yes, you definitely have to be a large player. But AT&T and Verizon are also working on 5G and there's fiber and you know a, a lot of other uh, ways to get fast data um, that are coming to the market. So yeah. I, but yeah, and I and I, I but I agree. I think you know having three large players do it, it you know increases the size of the footprint, and you know it's going to probably bring access to faster internet to most Americans. So I think it's probably a good thing for the consumer. I, I sometimes like plain hypotheticals here, and I do recall a few years ago Verizon was looking at the Canadian market and finally just said no. I think they're just getting way too much regulatory pushback because they are, of course, foreign owned here. I do wonder what any sort of shakeup in the U.S. market means for Canada. I don't suspect Verizon's going to take another go at it, uh, just based on what we see right now. But it could be interesting to see kind of the overall impacts this might have, the reverberations we might feel up here in Canada with regards to this shakeup. Yeah, very interesting. Speaking of here in Canada, we all sort of knew this was coming. It's been coming for a while, but we now have some data to back it up. According to Convergence Research Group, more Canadians will stream and subscribe to streaming services than those who watch cable TV in just two years' time. What do you think this means, Amiel, for our cable TV providers in the telecom space here in Canada? Well, they're kind of like an endangered species. Um, <laughs> I Honestly, I was surprised to hear that it's going to take another two years. I, personally, I haven't had cable in 15 years, and that's true of you know most of my friends and the people in my circle. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't see that changing for cable TV. We just talked about internet speeds getting faster and faster, which means – you know, the flexibility and the efficiency of consuming the content you want, video content in particular at the speed you want, is only going to become more accessible. Yeah. I, I don't have cable, Tyler. I don't think you have cable. I, I We cut the cord a couple years ago. And then we <laughs> but you actually... Still, but you still pay. Well, <laughs> that's what it feels like. No, but we actually did reconnect the cord uh, about eight, nine months ago uh, because there, there were changes from the CRTC with regards to picking a la carte. And so there's some specific channels that we had. We had paid out this PVR like years and years ago. So it was actually still worth it if we just wanted to record something. We're paying a lot less than I ever remembered paying like way back in the day. I think it's like maybe 25 bucks a month. And it's just that convenience factor if there's anything that we just wanted to catch. So I'm going to be like one of those very few millennials that's actually reconnecting the cord. I I'm like an aberration here. I'm curious to see if we see more of that. Do you have cable, Ali? Uh, I do. But I mean, over time, you, you have to imagine the the trend is certainly heading in the direction of these uh, Netflixes because, you know, these these companies are throwing millions and billions of dollars at new original content. And it continues to happen. Uh, I think uh, Amazon invested a billion dollars in the Lord of the Rings series over mm. five years. And that's coming out very shortly. Um, but that's just one example. I mean, I'm going to be sitting there watching Netflix. I'll be watching Lord of the Rings. So yeah, that's going to keep me off my TV. Well, the other thing that's really worth pointing out is that Disney's already announced that they're going to go hard into streaming very soon. So you're going to have various Disney 
streaming services, not just going to be one. It's they, they want to have, uh, say, sports. They want to have uh, movies, their own TV shows. They've got a lot that they own in their catalog. They, they're also in the process of merging with Fox. They're going to be able to add all the Fox catalog into a, the stuff that they can license as well. I think Disney's going to be shaking up this, and I yep. think they have enough content to really do that even more. You, you, get even more Canadians watching through streaming services too. So if you think about advertisers and they're, and they're seeing this trend, what's, you know, what is going to happen to, to TV? It may be endangered before we know it. Especially when you think of Disney, I think kid and family content and how advertisers yeah. really want to get into that That's space right. too, yeah. right? You're going to be looking at Disney. Uh, I mean, what do you think this means for our cultural industries here? I mean, we know Amazon to a fairly big extent, Netflix are investing. We have some questions around what exactly that looks like over the long term. But in terms of protecting Canadian providers and content, should more be done? Is enough being done? Um, I I mean, yes, uh, we should definitely continue to encourage. I don't know if protection is the right way to think about it, but certainly encourage and support the development of Canadian content. I mean, I look at Netflix and Amazon as distribution arms, and um, yes, they are creating their own content, but there's no reason why Canadians can't be a big player in that development. And I, you know, I was happy to see Bell, um, you know, have this really innovative. They're granted very far behind <laughs> Amazon and Netflix. But, you know, of all the you know, companies vying for the space, Bell managed to become a, a strong player in the content space. And I think that's really great. We're speaking to BIV's weekly tech panel with us in studio today, Amiel Lake, entrepreneur in residence at the University of British Columbia, and Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa. Back to the news I mentioned at the top, of course, Amazon expanding in Vancouver and creating 3,000 new jobs. Big news. Good news, Ali? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, thinking quite holistically about the situation, I think this is great to, you know, foster a, a better ecosystem for software development, for uh, business, for jobs, for that matter. It's going to create a ton of new jobs. It's going to bring uh, businesses downtown. Um, so I, I see it as quite positive from that perspective, for sure. Uh, I mean, is this kind of the consolation prize for us <laughs> not getting HQ2? Is that what this is? It certainly seems that way. Um, I mean, we were criticized quite heavily for touting our low, low wages. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, probably not overtly stated, but I'm sure that made its way into the decision. Um, I Like Ali, I, I do think it's good news, but it does make it harder for startups. I uh, you know, remember when Microsoft and Sony and a number of other players started to come to town when I had my company and recruiting tech talent and and competing with the wages um, the wages that get paid at those companies is certainly more challenging. Yeah, agreed. I mean, we we certainly will feel it in Progressa as well at the at the individual software developer level and at the wage level for sure as it impacts uh, that group. Um, but I, I think I see that as a short term blip. You know, yeah. that's gonna it's gonna impact startups for maybe three four years, and then probably over the longer term, it's gonna foster probably more innovation in the city, and hopefully, a sort of a new crop of startups will come come out from that. I totally agree. And Amazon offers great training. Right. So it'll definitely improve the caliber of talent in the city, which will be great. If we think about it from just maybe a broader level, just a city level as well, do you guys anticipate maybe housing prices that they're going to continue their crawl upwards? We're going to have 3,000 very high paying jobs that are going to be available once again here in the city. I, I, that hunt for talent is going to be even more competitive. 
We're going to have more startups flocking to Vancouver, I think, because they know that there's going to be such a great presence here. I, I just wonder what it means for livability within the city, especially knowing how you know just sky high the real estate prices are already. I mean, the city's already pretty unlivable. It's already <laughs> pretty expensive. So I, I, I can't see it going too much higher because of this particular uh, issue. Um, but I certainly, if the trend continues and other large uh, corporations come into the city and, and that sort of, sort of is a long-term trend, then uh, you know, supply, and de- supply and demand will become an issue. <laughs> and Go ahead. Even with um, high salaries to own a home in Vancouver, it's more than just a high salary that you need. So I Certainly, there'll be competition for the ever-decreasing kind of middle-class uh, condo market, but I don't know how much pressure it'll put on the housing market. We'll have to see. 2022, I think, is when it's slated. There's something symbolic about Amazon moving into the old Canada Post building. I, I like that. I mean, I, I looked at the design. I thought it was a little bit of a weird design, but I thought it was nice to see Amazon you know, downtown right across from Telus. Yeah. That was a good symbolic thing for sure. Yeah, there you go. Ali, Amiel, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. That's Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa and Amiel Lake, entrepreneur in residence at UBC. You're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. I'm Haley Wooden. I'm Tyler Orton. Up next, Mo Dollywall. He's the director of the Vision Conference. He's going to join us to talk about trends in marketing. A lot, as always, going on in the technology space. I'm curious, Tyler, to see what comes with this Amazon news as they build this building until 2022. It's a big change for Vancouver. Well, and I think change is something that a lot of people within marketing are facing right now as well. It absolutely is. We're going to talk about that with our guest coming up. No sector, no business is immune to rapid advancements in technology. We talked about this at the top of the hour. And it's really interesting, I think, to think about what this means for businesses, how they connect with consumers. They now have to account for mobile, for social media. It's a totally different landscape than, say, it was in 2008. Absolutely. And I think if we look at just the challenges of keeping up with everything. I wonder if a lot of people are saying it's too much for me. Like what, mm-hmm. how, how do we even tackle this from the get go? How do I afford it? Might be a question yeah, too, because it can be very expensive. Well, these are some of the ideas that will be discussed at the upcoming vision conference taking place May 10th here in Vancouver. It's hosted by the BC chapter of the American marketing association It's our annual signature event. And we're joined today by director of vision, Mo Dollywall to talk all about this year's conference and the themes it will be addressing. Mo, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to know if the playbook has changed. Is it different to be a marketer in 2018 than it was even last year? Um, Yeah, and that's actually one of the ongoing challenges, I think, that uh, is going to be one of the topics of conversation on May 10th. Um, Not only has the playbook changed, the playbook continues to change, and the rate of change of this playbook is accelerating. Uh, And that's a huge challenge for senior marketing roles in most organizations. Has it shifted then the skill set you need to be a successful senior marketer or strategist in this space? Um, I think it's widened and deepened the skill set you need. Um, Marketing is fulfilling a far different function than it did years ago um, in that there's, uh, I think the term marketing is, is kind of becoming a grab bag for all sorts of performance uh, that's expected within an organization. And this ranges from brand strategy to performance marketing to even shaping the culture of an organization. 
And as this has kind of broadened and deepened, um, I think the intensity within marketing departments has intensified as a result. Um, the adoption of technology has uh, intensified incredibly. So whereas even a few years ago, we were seeing more separation between technology and uh, senior strategy roles in marketing. Uh, now we're actually seeing that there's uh, a lot of overlap and if not overlap, at least a lot of synergy between IT departments and marketing departments. I, I think about how fragmented just media is becoming. It used to be a few decades ago, you'd maybe buy a TV ad. You, you still want to ha- uh, stand out or you could get a billboard or uh, you know, just something in the newspaper pages. Now you've got so many digital di- like differences going on at this point. How do you actually make a play to actually stand out, grab people's attention, make sure that you're just not going to be lost in the shuffle going forward? So there's a couple of different schools of thought on that. And in general, the industry has turned towards uh, programmatic and algorithm-based buying. And that's been, I think, more of a uh, more of a reaction towards the fragmentation and a way to kind of you know, react to it and try to, I think, mitigate some of the, uh, the effects that, that marketing departments are feeling from that. Um, but the point that Rory makes, uh, Rory Sutherland, our, our keynote on the day, um, and that I actually tend to agree with, is that all this focus on the math uh, and the mathematics of marketing and the performance of marketing has taken some of the focus off of the magic uh, of marketing. And he's a huge advocate for that, of really allowing um, marketing departments not function to have enough sort of R&D space and enough risk capital to be able to make some smart bets and to actually take some risks. Okay, I, I like that because uh, if you talk to startups, you, you get the idea you need to fail fast. Uh, is there a willingness to try something that might be a little bit out there? You're, you're not going to put all your budget into one big thing, but maybe try little experiments, see what really sticks to the wall here. Is, is that kind of something that's taking hold with a lot of companies right now? I think so. And if you were to look at sort of some of the large brands, um, like I recently had the opportunity to uh, uh, spend some time with the global brand director for Heineken, for example. Um, and there's a, a massive global brand, but they actually don't just look at things like programmatic or just that really, you know, ruthless sort of mathematics based marketing. They actually have a fair sized budget that you could constitute as risk capital for their marketing department. Mm. So they're running experiments and trying new ways of doing things all the time. Uh, some of that stuff is going to fly and some of it's not. But what that allows them to do is continually introduce that sort of sense of magic into their brand. If you're a small company, though. Mo, who may not really even have a budget for marketing or might have, you know, very small budgets that they want to try and extend and stretch. Can you take risks? Can you afford to take risks? How do you remain creative, but also, you know, ensuring that you're going to, to meet your financial needs? Um, I think when you're a smaller player, I actually feel like you can't afford uh, not to take risks. Because hmm. uh, on the one hand, um, you know, anything that might be sort of deemed as a, as a failure as far as a marketing investment is concerned, I think it's going to be a smaller investment overall. Uh, but beyond that, when you are in a market that is, let's say, a really you know noisy marketplace and you're trying to differentiate yourself, uh, I think having a real keen understanding of what you're offering is and then taking some smart risks. Um, I think that's the that's the only way to go, because uh, in the absence of that, you're just introducing more noise into an already noisy marketplace. 
Do you think, you know, if you look at what's going on with the dominance that we see with regards to Facebook, Google, the way that people are just advertising, you still need to you know, market and get people's attention that way. But we've also had a lot of concerns over privacy data going forward. And I've spoken to marketers about this with regards to, say, data collection, what's going to be helpful for them just focusing on on particular demographics that they want to reach out to. Is this in the conversation at all right now? Are marketers becoming more you know, concerned about, I guess, the perceptions about data collection right now? I think it's more reactionary than anything. Um, the, um, the reaction we're seeing to data collection today, it's kind of startling in some ways uh, because people are, um, I think, reacting as if this sort of happened overnight. Uh, but it's been this sort of effect of kind of boiling a frog over the last, uh, <laughs> over the last 10 years. Where year after year, you know, some changes are happening, um, and we just don't notice them. And you know, I, I kind of uh, there's a vacation I took with a friend of mine uh, in 2006, and kind of puts that in sharp relief. So I remember having a conversation with him about like wanting to like you know live blog our travels, and in 2006 that was a uh, that was a massive privacy breach for him. And he was like, "That's that's insane. There's no way I'd want to post a picture online." Uh, and you fast forward, you know, sure, it has been 12 years, but you fast forward to today and it is, uh, you know, it's an activity that's second nature. So we've been giving up a lot over time. And I feel like uh, increasingly our systems and our society are configured to. And it has to do a lot with human nature. I mean, human nature tends to kind of uh, follow the path of least resistance. So in the name of convenience, uh, there's a lot of things that I do on a daily basis to compromise my own privacy and security because it's easier and it's convenient. Some random app that you're seeing online says, you know, log in with your Facebook account. I'm like, oh God, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. I just click the button and off you go. So I think consumers are sort of complicit on that side, uh, but it's always been marketing's job to make things appealing and attractive. And if they can do that while making things more convenient, uh, I think that's going to put them in a bit of tension increasingly uh, with these data and privacy concerns. We're speaking to Mo Dollywall. He's the director of Vision Conference, which is taking place in Vancouver on May 10th. He's also the director of strategy at Skyrocket. It's a sort of part of the the branding or marketing, I guess, if you will, around vision, which is to maybe challenge some long-held beliefs about marketing and what may no longer actually be true. And I'm curious what that might be to use your, you know, a frog boiling slowly in a pot of water. Are marketers waking up and what are they maybe realizing may no longer be true? So that's actually um, a big reason why we were pretty deliberate with with um, vision and what we wanted this conference to be. Um, it isn't meant to be like a demo of tools and technologies and things like that. Um, the way we designed the conference is really such that the the practices that we're going to leave people with um, are meant to be sort of timeless. Um, our approach is that if you can change the way people think and if you can make people really hyper aware of knowing uh, what they don't know, that'll have them asking the right questions. And they'll be asking those right questions on an ongoing basis. And that for us is going to be much better than kind of coming up with, um, you know, some knowledge that might be accumulated in the past year and, you know, presenting some sort of summary of that or some sort of demo of that, uh, that is going to be outdated next year. So instead, we thought if we can grab people for a day and, uh, you know, play with some of their gray matter, uh, make it a little bit more malleable and, uh, and send them home asking a lot of the right questions and uh, investigating their own practice better. Uh, we thought that was going to be a good use of a day. You don't have to give away the entire conference, but is there a trend or if we want to paint a picture for some of the listeners, is there something going on right now that you think has been very effective or just a direction that is new that we're going towards at this point? 
Um, I think, you know, what I'm going to say here is going to sound a little obvious, but uh, as as the use of programmatic and artificial intelligence um, continues to grow exponentially, uh, there's going to be the other side of that, uh, which is going to be the foil to those sorts of practices. And this is actually um, a key part of Rory's talk, where when it comes to, uh, you know, the performance measurement and marketing, that's that's becoming uh, increasingly high pressure. Uh, and, and you guys know that best. And the point that he makes is that, um, you know, programmatic actually forces us to get into really, really mundane spaces with where we're advertising and how we're advertising. And so the tension that he brings to this conversation is almost a rejection of what the mathematics is telling us and what the accounting departments are telling us of what ROI is supposed to look like. And in that rejection is where he introduces this concept of, of magic or getting to the deeper why. So I feel like um, we're going to continue to see a divide between the type of marketing that is really math-based and the type of marketing that is really almost uh, doing a little bit of soul-searching uh, on behalf of the consumer to understand uh, their behaviors and their mindsets, uh, I think in a more authentic way than we're capable of through technology. As we see a greater adoption of technology, more technological options, where does that leave sort of the human-to-human -human connection or the emotional aspect of marketing? That's a good question. We... <laughs> We wrestle with that uh, on a daily basis, and it's kind of like, um, you know, if you want to get somebody's attention today, um, you would write them like a handwritten letter and you would mail it. Um, <laughs> because in this environment, receiving a handwritten letter is the disruptive technology. Mm. So I think, um, you know, the more opportunity there is to actually step out of the noisy spaces and uh, kind of, I think, remember some of these experiences and reinvent some of these experiences that used to be the norm uh, a few decades ago. Uh, I think that's what you need to do to bring some of that humanity back to our interaction. I'll throw one caveat uh, out there, though. I, I do recall I was working in a newsroom about six, seven years ago, and we had put a posting out for a new reporter. And my editor, she received a handwritten resume, or it was a mailed-in resume. And she's like, wow, look at this guy. He's taking the time to do all this. What she didn't realize is he just didn't really know how to send emails or anything <laughs> like that. So there, you have to be careful at some points, you know, if you're sending the wrong message to a certain degree. But Well, maybe the nicely hand-lettered uh, Gmail address will kind of <laughs> send across the right signal. Of course, yeah. There you go. Well, it sounds like lots of interesting conversations will be had at this year's Vision Conference. Mo, where can people go to find more information? Yeah, you can go to bcama.com. Uh, the Vision Conference is uh, prominently displayed on our website. Um, and it's going to be a great day between Rory and our various facilitators from an uh, organization called Think. Uh, Sarah Dickinson and uh, Aaron Cooper are joining us. Um, Stanley Lay from Domain7 is going to be running our technology workshop. Uh, it's a pretty packed day and mm -hmm. it's meant to be intense. Um, but our hope is to leave people transformed by the end of it. There you go. Mo, thanks for joining us today to talk about it. That's Mo Dhaliwal, Director of Vision Conference. He's also the Director of Strategy at Skyrocket. You're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. I'm Haley Wooden. I'm Tyler Orton. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. A lot to cover at Vision. I'm looking forward. I'm facilitating a panel too, so I get to be part of it, which will be interesting. But yeah, a lot to cover and a lot going on in the city of Vancouver. It was a very local-focused show today. Yeah, and I think the very fact that you're able to get an idea of what's coming down the pike with regards to a lot of the trends, I think it's always very insightful and you'll be ahead of the curve here. There you go. Well, thank you very much for listening to BIV today. You can find 
other episodes on iTunes, as well as at BIV.com, where you can find all of our business news from our BIV newsroom. Thanks for listening. I'm Haley Wooden. I'm Tyler Orton. And that's it for our show today. Thank you for listening to Business in Vancouver. We'll be back next time.